some of my best dives of my life have been in January, February in the fjords in Alaska. These are straight up and down, straight down to 500 meters, straight up in the air, you know, several thousand, uh, thousand feet up in the air mountains. And you dive down this wall and you just, as you look down, as you start to dive, sometimes the visibility is 100, 200, 300 feet. And so you can see all of this beautiful wall as you go down. And here I am diving around it, sticking my head in the corals, being able to touch it and, and really get a good close-up look. You know, as, as a deep sea ecologist, as a reproductive ecologist, as a coral biologist, it's just my idea of heaven. And it's one of my favorite places in the world to go diving. That's Rianne Waller describing what it's like to go scuba diving in the frigid ocean off the Alaskan coast, where she studies deep sea cold water corals. Welcome to the Main Question podcast from the University of Maine. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. Now, mind you, this is not like a dive on a coral reef you may have taken part in on a vacation to the tropics with a bathing suit, fins, and a snorkel. This is a dive in waters that can be as cold as 34 degrees with a dry suit, sometimes under the ice. A dive that requires you to soak some of your equipment in hot water so it doesn't freeze. Why go through all this effort? Well, Waller, an associate professor of marine sciences, does these dives or uses remotely operated vehicles to study these cold water corals which live in inhospitable locations, like the Arctic and the Antarctic, pretty far cry from the Great Barrier Reef in Australia or the Bahamas. She's interested in how they live, grow, and reproduce. These creatures, yes, they are actually animals, play a critical role in the ocean ecosystem. They provide shelter and food for countless species all the way up the food chain to dolphins, whales, sharks, and us. And like many ocean ecosystems, they're under threat from forces that are all too familiar. Fishing pressure, pollution, and climate change. We wanted to find out more about these corals, what it takes to find and study them, and just how it is you stay warm and actually get work done when you're in these waters and even under the ice. Waller, who's based at the Darling Marine Center, UMaine's coastal marine research facility in Walpole, spoke to us about this work and the adventure that goes along with it. I imagine most people on the street don't think of coral very often, and if they do, they're thinking of uh, snorkeling with tropical fish in the Bahamas or what have you, or maybe the Great Barrier Reef. Do you agree that that's probably the, the, the way most people think about this? And then cold water coral, they probably have no idea, right? I think that's very true. I think when people hear the word coral, you know, they generally think of scuba diving and snorkeling and tropical beaches. Um, and it's certainly what a lot of my friends and family thought when I first started working on cold water corals, that I was, you know, going to wander off to Australia and have fun in the sun. When in fact, uh, most of my, my PhD and, and work on cold water corals has been in uh, very wet climes, sometimes snow, sometimes ice, and, and in places that uh, are more polar than, than tropical. Let's maybe start at the beginning. What exactly is coral and what role does it play in the ocean ecosystem? Coral is, um, you know, it was widely thought to be a plant for a very, very long time, but it's not actually. It's an animal. It's actually in kind of the same grouping as jellyfish. If you think of a, a jellyfish and turn that upside down and give it a skeleton, well, that's, that's a coral. Uh, it's made up of many individuals, um, all kind of stuck together in, the, in this matrix of calcium carbonate, which forms a, a big skeleton, and that's how we form colonies. We get these big colonies and reefs of, of corals. Um, and these corals really play an important uh, role in the ocean. They are what we call ecosystem engineers. They actually build habitat for other animals to live around. 
And uh, some of these corals, you know, can, can have thousands and thousands of species that are associated with them. And these species like crabs and starfish and snails and worms, all these animals, they live around the coral, they make their home in the coral, they feed, they reproduce, you know, they spend their whole lives in these, in these corals. And important for, for cold water corals too is, you know, these aren't just small little worms and starfish. These are, you know, bigger fish as well that, that come and feed around these coral ecosystems. So the difference between deep and shallow water corals and cold versus tropical, can you tell us about that? So the difference between uh, cold water corals and tropical corals, they're primarily the same organism. The big difference is these tropical corals have a photosynthetic algae within their cells that actually uses sunlight to produce energy. But these cold water corals are in other ways exactly the same. They just don't have these photosynthetic algae. So they, they don't need sunlight and they don't need warm water to be able to survive. And what that means for these corals is, A, they grow pretty slow because they don't have that extra energy from the sun. So where a tropical coral might grow several centimeters, several tens of centimeters in a year, a cold water coral really gro only grows a couple of millimeters in a year. And it means that these cold water corals can live pretty much anywhere. You know, we find them in the Antarctic, we find them in the Arctic, we find them at 4,000, 5,000 meters down in the deep sea. You do have a few species that lives in tropical areas, but they tend to live in uh, like caves and underhangs where other organisms are not growing because they just can't compete in terms of growth. So where, where you find animals that grow really fast because of the sunlight, you don't tend to find these cold water corals. You need to go to colder areas and deeper areas and darker areas before you find these corals. What are the big picture questions that you're investigating? What uh, occupies your time as you think about corals? My lab, uh, myself and my students, we're really interested in looking at reproductive ecology. So, so the kind of questions that we like to ask and, and try and answer are, you know, when are these corals reproducing in the ocean? So when do they produce eggs and sperm? When do they produce larvae, these babies that travel the oceans? And what influences that? You know, one of the big questions my lab uh, tries to answer is, you know, how are things like um, climate change, warming, ocean acidification, and then physical impacts of things like trawling and, and damage, you know, how are these things affecting reproduction? And ultimately, you know, reproduction is one of the most important um, ecological processes of any animal. If you don't reproduce, you don't continue the population, you don't... Um, spread to new populations, you don't ultimately survive. And so these organisms need to reproduce. And so we're really interested in learning how, when, and where that happens. How are corals doing right now? You mentioned a lot of different issues that are affecting them. Are, are they holding up? The pressures on cold water corals are slightly different from those in, in tropical corals. There's this phrase that I, I like to use. It's called out of sight, out of mind. And it's used for a lot of deep sea animals, but I like to use it for deep sea corals. And that's primarily, as we talked about, you know, when you think about coral, you think about, you know, scuba diving and being able to see these beautiful reefs. Well, there are these beautiful reefs in the deep and, and you can't see them. And so people don't really think about them. And so often when I talk to people, you know, first off, they don't know they exist. Um, and especially here in, in Maine, people don't know that we have cold water coral reefs, these gardens in the Gulf of Maine. And then secondly, they're, they're, they think, well, they're protected. They're in the deep ocean. Nothing can possibly happen to them down there. And that's really not true. You know, most of these uh, coral ecosystems were first discovered because uh, fishermen are moving deeper as, as shallow water species are running out. Fishermen are having to move deeper to maintain catches. And, and these corals get caught up in the nets and they get brought up to the surface and these fishermen bring, us, bring them to us. They bring them to scientists and say, hey, what is this and, and why is this here? And so a lot of these coral reefs are being physically damaged by, by fishing practices, particularly bottom trawling. 
Uh, a lot of them are damaged through things like oil and gas and mineral exploration, which is happening in deeper and deeper waters, again, because our resources in the shallow are running out. And then things like climate change as well. So these corals don't bleach. Bleaching is the process where these tropical corals lose their photosynthetic algae and run away. Well, these corals don't have that in the first place. But how these corals are responding to climate change is a little unknown right now. There's not a huge amount of research, but we do know that these corals live in very, very stable water. You know, in the deep sea, the temperature doesn't change seasonally like it does in, up in the upper ocean. We don't see big degree changes over a season. They, they live in a very, very steady, usually about four to six to eight degrees Celsius. And that, you know, the, the nutrients in the water don't change. It's just very stable and steady. So as climate change is making the water more acidic and making the water slightly warmer, well, these are conditions that these corals have never seen before in their lives. And so part of what we're trying to do in, in my lab and in many other labs is really understand how these changes are going to affect basic processes like reproduction. So of all the creatures and things in the ocean, why corals for you? I mean, you could study whales, you could swim with dolphins, uh, you know, there's so many more glamorous, I guess, quote unquote, creatures in the ocean. Why corals? It's true. Every marine biologist studies whales and dolphins, right? So. Right. <laughs> That's... That is the stereotype, right? Yeah, yeah. So for me, I, I think, um, you know, corals were always very interesting to me. Um, you know, as a child, I spent a lot of time snorkeling. Um, my parents were scuba divers. And so we went and, and snorkeled as kids all around the world. And I just love the colors and the diversity, you know, just seeing these animals on the bottom of the ocean. And then for me, it, it's all the other animals that live around it as well. These, these are not just animals living solo, doing their own thing. They're creating habitat for all these other organisms. And that's just really exciting for me. But really, you know, in terms of how I, I got into corals, I really kind of fell into it. You know, the right PhD and the right PhD advisor came along at the same time. It was a, a brand new project looking at cold water corals that really hadn't been studied before. And I worked in a reproductive lab. Um, and it really just spawned from there. I, I got excited about this PhD. I was lucky enough to be able to get it. And the rest is history, really. Speaking to the newness of the field, I've heard you say that this is quite a new field. We, we've gone from I think you said maybe a century or more ago, nothing basically lives in the deep water in the ocean to now around the year 2000, people started to realize what was there, including these corals. Is that right? That's really true. You know, back in the 1800s, there were a couple of theories that came out that nothing could possibly live in the deep sea. You know, the deep sea is high pressure. It's cold. It's dark. You know, what animals could possibly live there? Nothing could possibly live there. And even back in the 1800s, there were certain big expeditions that did bring back animals from the deep sea that showed that this wasn't really true. But it wasn't until, you know, a great wealth of data was produced that these, these theories were overturned. And scientists decided, well, animals must do live in the deep sea. Let's see what's there. And so in terms of cold water corals, you know, people have known about them since kind of the mid 1800s. Uh, samples were collected. They were described, often described as plants rather than animals. But people knew that these corals were there. In terms of ecological research on cold water corals, that work really started in about 1999, 2000. And that was really on the back of fisheries pressures. Um, there were several big coral reefs that were discovered in deep water in, in Europe that were found to have massive impacts by fisheries. And so scientists really started to pay attention. You know, we don't really know anything about these animals. And so we should really start to investigate how they're impacted by these, these um, fisheries pressures and just learn a little bit more about them. How do you do your work? Take us into the field. What does that look like? 
So going into the field for me is really split into two different parts. So I have my deep water research and I have research that I do using scuba in kind of more polar, polar ecosystems. To go out into the field and do deep sea research, it's really a long time scale that you're thinking of. You write a proposal, a research proposal to try and get funding. And then about a year later, you hear whether you have that funding. And then usually about another year on top of that, you actually get the ship time and you get the, the equipment time to be able to do that research. So in the deep sea, you know, we need things like submersibles or remotely operated vehicles to be able to do our research. And those things are sparse. You know, there aren't many of them here in the U.S. There aren't many of them in the world even. And so you're really fortunate, you know, to be able to get that funding to go and work with those tools. And generally those big expeditions as well are done in collaboration with other projects. So I might be on board with some geologists, some physical oceanographers, some biochemists, all doing their research in that region in the deep sea as well. And it's one of the really fun things about being a deep sea biologist is you really don't work solo on anything. You, you work with other people in different fields and you learn so much from from everybody else that you're on board with. You take part in scuba diving in some of the coldest water in the world. How do you gear up and prepare mentally for doing that? Just talk about the logistics and what you have to wear or just prepare yourself to go into these cold waters. The temperatures there are, are what? What are we talking about? Some of the temperatures that we work in uh, going diving, scuba diving, some of those can be near freezing. You know, uh, I've done dives in Alaska where it's just been 34 degrees in the water. So literally just above that freezing point. And it's really, it's a whole different beast from doing deep sea science. Um, so it's really only in the last uh, kind of five, six years or so that I started scuba diving for research. Um, and part of this was spurred on by finding cold water corals that were living in more shallow conditions. You know, some of these corals actually come up a little bit shallower in glacial ecosystems, so glacial fjords. And some of the places I work are Alaska and down in Patagonian fjords in, in Chile. And these are really special areas. You know, the glacier feeds in really cold water. It keeps it dark because they have a freshwater lens on top. And so you don't get a lot of algae or other really fast growing organisms live there. And some of these larvae have crept up from the deep sea onto the shelf and crept into these fjord ecosystems. And so we find some of these corals living shallow enough for us to actually do scuba diving around. And as a reproductive biologist, this is just the most fantastic ecosystem to work in. Because unlike the deep sea, where you can be hit by bad weather and get locked inside and they don't like to send you on cruises in the winter, you can go year round into these ecosystems. And so we can really look at how reproduction changes over a year and, and have a, like a really good analysis of, of single species. And so that's what really spurred me on to, to learn how to dive um, and to be able to dive in, in these ecosystems. And, and to answer your question, you know, the, the getting set up for going scuba diving in these cold waters is really different from going scuba diving in the tropics. You know, you need specialist equipment. We use dry suits where you actually stay dry inside rather than a wetsuit. You learn about ice diving because you can have things over your head, such as icebergs or plates of ice in some of these, these uh, ecosystems. And you want to learn how to handle that as a diver. And honestly, you just you need practice diving in some of these extreme environments some of the dives that I've done in Alaska have been near zero visibility. And so that can be kind of scary if you're not used to it and, and you know, having good partners. And, and you learn tricks as well on how to dive in cold water. Your regulator, which is the mouthpiece that you breathe through, can be very, very sensitive to cold water. 
you buy ones that are specific to cold water, but even those can be very, very sensitive and they can get ice in them and, and freeze open. And so you do things like when you get on your little Zodiac that's going to take you over to the wall where you're going to dive is you have a cooler of hot water. You stick your hands in there, you stick your hood in there, and you stick your regulator in there. And you literally throw it all in your mouth very quickly and jump in the water before it has a chance to freeze in, in the air before you jump in. So it can be pretty, wow. pretty extreme diving in some of these locations. But believe me, it is fun. I, I do love it. <laughs> do your hands work when it's that cold? I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, just going outside in the winter, my hands, you know, just stop working. It can be it can be difficult, particularly if you're doing very fine scale things. So some of the things that I that I do underwater is we collect very small pieces of samples. Um, you don't want to collect large samples because you don't want to damage the corals that you're working on. And so you're looking at taking pieces of coral that are only a few centimeters big. And so that's a very fine operation to do. The key for me is having my gloves filled with hot water before I jump in. And then I get about 30 minutes or so of fine scale motor skills before my hands really start to freeze up. What does it look like under there? You talked about zero visibility, but are there times when you're seeing scenes under the ocean that, uh, that you could describe for us? Oh, there are. Yeah. You know, the, the glacial fjords, you know, in kind of the summer and fall months, they can be really murky and nasty. You have the glacier, it's uh, warming up and so it's melting in those months. And so you kind of get this layer of sludge and you can't really see much. But you go in the winter. Um, some of my best dives of my life have been in January, February in the fjords in Alaska. And you jump in the water and it's just this crystal blue color. And you swim over to the wall and, the, and we're working on, on fjord walls. So these are straight up and down, straight down to 500 meters, straight up in the air, you know, several thousand, uh, thousand feet up in the air mountains. And you dive down this wall and you just, as you look down, as you start to dive, sometimes the visibility is 100, 200, 300 feet. And so you can see all of this beautiful wall as you go down. And for me, as a, as a coral ecologist, you know, I can see these, these usually deep sea corals sticking out of the wall. And we're just going lower and lower through the water column and you're getting closer and closer to these corals. And it's just, it's a phenomenal ecosystem. This is an ecosystem that shouldn't be there. It should be in deep water. It should be at 500, 1,000 meters. And we should only be able to see it using a submersible. And here I am diving around it, sticking my head in the corals, being able to touch it and, and really get a good close-up look. You know, as, as a deep sea ecologist, as a reproductive ecologist, as a coral biologist, it's just my idea of heaven. And it's one of my favorite places in the world to go diving. You talked a little bit about the challenges corals face all, all over the world. What, what would happen if they really are diminished or go away? They're talking about the Great Barrier Reef losing 60% of it these days due to bleaching. But just overall, what, what would happen if we lost much of the, the corals that are out there? It would be really concerning. You know, these corals, they have value in themselves. You know, they, they turn over carbon, they build these calcium carbonate skeletons, and so they use a lot, of, a lot of carbon. But, you know, the habitats that they create are the major value. You know, they, they harbor thousands of different species that are very vital to our ecosystem. So kind of form the very base of this food chain. They form the habitat that these small animals live on that feed the bigger animals that feed the bigger animals. And so if you take away these corals, you know, even in deep water, it's the same in shallow. If you take away those corals, all those other animals go away. And then the whole ecosystem changes. You lose a lot of the big top predators because they don't have the small food sources to be able to feed on. And so you just change that whole ecosystem. In the deep sea, that means you can go from a, a thriving coral garden that harbors 2,000 species to basically nothing, just wandering fish that might come by that don't need habitat. So you don't, you don't have that base anymore. 
So it's really concerning as a scientist seeing some of these ecosystems that are so damaged. And in the deep sea as well, you know, in, in the shallow water, those corals grow really fast. In the deep sea, they don't. You know, we can go back 50, 100 years later and see no regrowth in some of these areas. You have students involved with your work. Can you talk about what they contribute? I have um, both undergraduates and graduate students in my lab, and they all contribute to this research, to, to our ultimate research goals as a laboratory. Um, so I have graduate students who have worked on corals in Alaska, in the Antarctic, um, in the Pacific. Um, I have some projects starting up in New Zealand. And I like to involve undergraduates as well. So down at the Darling Marine Center, we don't have undergraduates year round. So we do a lot of undergraduate research in the summer and fall when we do have students down there. And the undergraduates that I bring in are always tied specifically to a project. So I have um, some students working on reproduction in particular species. So I have collections of various species from around the globe. And my undergraduates will, will take those projects on and, and do those projects, make them their capstones, and then very often publish them at the end of it as well. You know, they, they do a lot of really good work in the lab. Um, I have under, other undergraduates who I have taken on expeditions too. I had expeditions up to Alaska. And I had a couple of students who had gone through the scientific diving program at the Darling Marine Center. And they came along and actually did scientific diving in some of these fjords and, and got that experience, which was really great for them. You know, tying the, the diving with the science into an actual project and that turned into their capstones. And then that turned into publications at the end of it as well. So really contributing to not just the science of my lab, but the overall science of cold water coral ecology. What do you do once you have these samples in the lab? What, what does that step look like? Our lab um, is really focused on microscopy, so we use a couple of different methods. Uh, we use something called histology primarily, which is taking pieces of the coral. For us, it's reproductive tissue. For other labs, it's other things. But we take that tissue and we embed it into wax blocks, and then we thin section it and stain up different, different parts in the animal. Um, and so that way we can look under the microscope and see things like eggs, and we can see, see things like sperm. We can tell what stage they're at, what sizes they're at, what they look like compared to other corals. Other work we do as well, we use uh, electron microscopy. So we use something called scanning electron microscopy, which um, is kind of a ultra high magnification microscopy. You can really look at outside structures of things. And then we use transmission electron microscopy as well, which is actually looking at individual cells and what those cells look like inside animals. So we kind of use it on the, all these different levels from, from the very high level where we're looking at what the outside of an animal looks at to looking at you know, basic structures of eggs and sperm and then actually looking at how sperm are actually made up on in the individual cell level. So it, it kind of goes through the whole, the whole process. Can you talk about your involvement with National Geographic? I know they've been involved with some of your work, and one of the recent things was talking about how you use math to do your work. I, I can't see how that would apply, so maybe you could uh, help me figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think when people hear that I use math and I'm a biologist, um, especially at the student level, they get a bit scared. But yeah, math is incredibly important for, for everything that we do um, as marine biologists. You know, every marine biologist, even those who do work with whales and dolphins, use, use math as well. So in terms of, of National Geographic, so I became a National Geographic Explorer back in uh, 2008. And since then, one of the joys of being a National Geographic Explorer are these um, are teaming up with National Geographic Learning. And National Geographic Learning produce programs for um, school children, um, high school, elementary school children. And at the moment, they're producing a lot of textbooks, like they're producing English language textbooks. And the, the project I've been involved with recently has been for a math textbook. And what they try and do is they try and bring in real world situations and bring those into the classroom. 
And so some of the things that they asked me to do is just describe some of the research that I do and how that applies to, in this case, math. And so I use math for things like analysis of samples, you know, looking at statistical analysis to see whether corals are the same in one area versus the other, whether their reproduction is the same. In terms of scuba diving, I use math for my safety. You have to do things like calculate, you know, how much air in a tank you have, how deep you can go, how long you can dive, things like that. So it's used in, in different ways for doing the research that I do. What do you think the future holds for cold water corals? We've talked about some of the challenges and some of the issues. It's hard not to, to be discouraged when you think about climate change and all the things happening in the natural world. Are you hopeful? Or, I mean, what, do you, what do you see in the next uh, five, ten years or so? I think it's very easy um, to be discouraged, to be depressed about what we see. Um, so I've been on around 40 to 50 research cruises at this point, and every single one that I've been on, even some to the deepest parts of our planet, we see human impacts in some way, whether it's trash, whether it's damage to corals or other ecosystems. Humans have reached the, the, our real deep ocean. But on a personal level, I really like to be more positive about it. I think otherwise you can really lead yourself into a spiral, but I do, I do think it's, it's good to be positive. And one of the positive things that I see is just the amount of research that, that's going on in some of these ecosystems. You know, these deep sea corals, when I started, we were really a group of, you know, less than 50 to 100 scientists who were working on cold water corals. And I go to some of the meetings now, and there are three, 400 people and new students joining the group all the time. And, and just some really good research being done right now on how these corals are reacting to, to changes in their environment, how they're resilient to that, um, and how they're, you know, predicted to do in the future. And so I think, you know, with more scientific research, we learn more, we protect more of our ocean. When I, again, first started this, this work on cold water corals, there were no areas in the world that were protected for cold water corals. And now there are. There are several marine protected areas and, and other designations to protect these cold water corals. And so I think interest in our deep sea is growing. And so I think, you know, protective measures will grow alongside that. And so I'm, I'm really hopeful. Um, I've also seen a couple of projects recently go by, a couple that I'm involved in, looking at restoring areas of cold water corals that have been damaged. And I think that is super important research as well. So I think, I think there's a lot to be positive about. I think we need to keep those impacts in mind to keep us working towards those goals. Um, but I, I, I do think overall we're going in a good direction. What's the next trip? What's the next adventure you have planned? The next adventure, um, homeschooling my two preschoolers. <laughs> <laughs> I challenge you to know yeah, Sorry, that's not a real answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the next, uh, the next adventure, it's you know, hard to think about the next adventure while we're all stuck at home with, with COVID. But um, you know, I have new projects uh, that are coming up, um, primarily in New Zealand. I have a, a new collaboration that I'm super excited about, looking at reproduction in some New Zealand corals. New Zealand is very interested in protecting their cold water coral ecosystems. And so it's really fun to talk to the researchers and work with them out there, even if it's only by Zoom right now. Um, I have continuing projects down in Chile as well. We got some really exciting funding to start looking at larvae, the babies of these corals, and how they respond to climate changes. And then also thinking about continuing some work up in Alaska too. It's been a few years since I've got to visit those fjords that I love so much. And so it's exciting to think about going back there again. So hopefully as, as the world opens up here and research can continue, we can uh, keep going as a lab. Well, I hope that happens soon, but thanks so much for sharing your time with us. No problem. Thank you so much for, for talking to me. Thanks for checking us out. As always on The Main Question, if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at mainquestion at maine.edu. 
You can find this episode and all of our podcasts in a lot of different places, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Until next time, this is Ron Lisnett.